and gentlemen, welcome back to Discovery Debrief, a podcast that dives headfirst into the proverbial deep end of the latest trek into the final frontier, Star Trek Discovery. I'm co-host Chris Clow, and I'm joined by two members of our bold panel of Star Trek franchise explorers, including Rachel Clow. Hello. And Cicero Holmes. My captain is much shorter and much wider. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, uh, Zachy could not join us today, but he ordered us to shoulder on in spite of his absence. So to that end, we've enlisted the help of a very special guest co-host who's going to join us for our discussions today. This man is not only one of the single biggest Star Trek fans that you could ever hope to interact with, but he's also an author of officially released and sanctioned expanded universe material that takes place in our favorite spacefaring universe. His work includes such titles as the TOS novels Crisis of Consciousness and Troublesome Minds, along with contributions in the Star Trek Corps of Engineers Grand Designs short story anthology, and he's also co-written novels taking place in both the TNG and Voyager worlds. He is Mr. Dave Gallanter. Dave, thank you for joining us today. Uh, thank you for having me with that introduction. If I didn't know me better, I would be almost impressed with myself. <laughs> You are an impressive person. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Oh, but... ask my family. I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> well, Dave, tell us a little bit about yourself before we jump into our discussions. What is Star Trek to you? How deep would you say your fandom goes? And what are your general thoughts on Discovery specifically, particularly as we get ready to talk about these episodes here? I think Star Trek is probably um, my first fandom um, even before a lot of the stuff that uh, you know I grew up on as a kid, uh, being you know the Six Million Dollar Man and things like that, I'm uh, I, w- I was raised in the '70s and '80s, um, and uh, my mother got me into it. She was a big science fiction fan, so I started with the animated series, um, and I was such a fan it was to the point where I would watch In Search of with Leonard Nimoy and pretend that Mr. Spock was giving me science reports, <laughs> um, and so I have. Uh, either loved or liked or occasionally disliked almost every version of Trek there is. And I think that's like any Star Trek fan. But I've always found something in whichever show it is, whether it be Voyager or Enterprise or Next Generation or DS9 um, or the movies, something to connect with, uh, whether it was a character or a set of characters or a notion, something interesting. And I found that I can watch it no matter what version it is, whenever it's on. Um, even the worst you know, of the movies um, can attract me while it's on. And Discovery, for me, fits right into all of those. Um, although I will say I think Discovery is the best Star Trek in a long time, just in that it so holds my interest and keeps me on the edge of my seat as to what's happening. Um, I think they had the best first season, not flawless, but the best first season since the original series. And I think the second season is off to a great start. Yeah, very well said. You're not—I don't think you're going to get much of an argument from us here because uh, we're all pretty, pretty big fans of this show. I mean, obviously, we have a podcast; it's dedicated to it. But yeah, we can uh, hate it. We have, well, I mean, we're—I think we're critical of it in appropriate places, yes. but that doesn't get in the way of the fact that this seems to be a pretty exceptional show, all things considered. Uh, So I think you're going to find that we probably align pretty closely. So thank you again for joining us. Really appreciate having you aboard for this. Thank you for having me. 
Oh, our, our pleasure. So the episodes that we're going to be discussing today account for some pretty major firsts in the series' second season, as well as a kind of first for the franchise itself at large. Our first point of discussion is the first time we've checked in on the political intrigue at the highest levels of the Klingon Empire, while also giving us a little bit of insight into the, fa- into the uh, family dynamics of Sarek and Amanda's house, while both Michael and Spock lived under the same roof. And uh, since we were off for a week, uh, we will be talking about two episodes here. So the second, more momentous first, is the reintroduction of a character not seen since the original Star Trek pilot episode, and it gives us a very broad and unique look at the characters in a crisis situation aboard the ship, and a twist on an old Trek concept by showing us last contact. A lot of stuff happened in these So we're not going to belabor the point. Normally, uh, people who listen to the show, you're accustomed to hearing news and sort of what we've been up to since the last time we recorded, but we have a lot to talk about, so let's hit it. So the first episode we're going to be discussing is Point of Light. Amanda Grayson arrives on board Discovery with a stolen copy of Spock's medical records from the psychiatric facility he has voluntarily entered. Pike orders Commander Burnham to decrypt the files. The files lead Amanda to confirm that Spock has drawn the Red Angel since he was a child. Burnham tells her that to protect him from Vulcan's murderous logic extremists, she hurt Spock irreparably and caused their ongoing estrangement in order to create more distance between them, since she had remained a target of the xenophobic Vulcans throughout her life. So, first point of discussion, guys, we discussed last year that we were all a little wary of the idea of Spock and Burnham's estrangement coming from some kind of bitterness or resentment, but it looks like that's the avenue that they're going with to explain, at least here in the early going, that they haven't had much of a connection in their early Starfleet careers. What do you guys make of this positioning? Is it the most efficient explanation that someone can apply to make this dynamic make sense? Or do you prefer the, if they'd have uh, gone in a different direction? Cicero, kick us off. Well, I, I will say that uh, the first things first, they had to do this, right? They had to, It had to be something very simple, very boilerplate-y uh, to at least start us off. Mm-hmm. Uh, and... Uh, that I think that's okay because like much of this show and, and much of the series so far, I, I can guarantee you that there is a lot of nuance under, under that crust. Mm-hmm. So I'm not worried about it, uh, in the least that this is how we, you know, how it set off and how we started, uh, down this road of, of, what their uh, sibling confrontation complications are, um, but uh, because because I really do trust these writers to um, figure something out with with regards to that. Mm-hmm. Oh, I think that's understandable. Rachel, what do you think about this uh, dynamic as it's set up here? Um, I'm just thankful that they're not in love with each other. <laughs> Fair. <laughs> uh, that was that potential. Yes. plot line was freaking me out a little bit so <laughs> thank you cicero yeah no problem anytime i'm here for that so, so um that uh yeah i mean it makes sense that she would have to drive him away or whatever so mm-hmm. i'm happy with it okay 
Dave, what do you think? I got to say, it never occurred to me that they might go in the direction of them being some sort of a couple. Um, (laughs) But, uh, uh, you know, there are certain familial cliches, uh, like estrangement, that are cliches because they are true. Um, I, in fact, I have an older brother that um, I didn't talk to for eight years. Right. Mm. Um, And uh, we actually are in very good terms now. Um, it took the, uh, the, the death of our parents or right. respective different times, the first one to slowly bring us together and the last one to, to more closely unite us and realize that um, what we had harbored as adults were our views of each other as children. Um, and I can see something maybe similar sort of holding uh, Spock and Burnham apart if they got opinions of each other when they were kids. Um, and they've just held on to that as adults. I'm hoping it's something along those lines, since I've experienced something similar myself. Um, sure. But uh, I got to tell you, I also like the idea of uh, it not being as bitter, at least on her part, because it sounds to me like if she was trying to protect them, that's out of love. Yeah. So I like that. <laughs> yeah, that, no, that's and that's a very, very valid perspective. I mean, it's it's going to be it's going to be intriguing to see just how sort of lopsided those familial affections will be particularly if Spock potentially has none not just because he's a Vulcan but because well something happened to estrange them but i mean i'm i'm the way that it was positioned in the early going of this episode cuz we're going to come back to this later in the in the full discussion. Sure. And I have another, uh, another angle to explore courtesy of, of, uh, Zachy actually. Nice. But, um, I, I, I was actually pretty okay with the way that it was explained here in the early going, but, uh, I mean, it does kind of make me nervous and I'll, I'll, I'll expound upon that further a little bit later on, but, uh, Chris, uh, before we go on, I just want to say this. Yes. I have a sinking suspicion that, whatever Burnham's attempts are to reconcile this difference. And, and as Dave pointed out, um, just the, uh, uh, the, the estrangement is, is part of family dynamics. Um, you know, as, as Dave talked about his estrangement from his brother, I've, I've talked on the show about my estrangement from both my father and my sons, um, you know, for, for various different reasons and, 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 and have managed to make those things uh, work better uh, and not as a result of tragedy, thank goodness. But, Mm. um, but I believe with regards to Spock and Burnham, that it will end um, not necessarily tragically, but it, there, there is, I think there is a level of tragedy with regards to Michael Burnham as a person that we will see throughout this entire series. Um, we've already seen it already kind of uh, the tragic introduction of, of a first love um, last year with, with Lieutenant Tyler the loss of you know the the understanding that they can't be uh together the the heartbreak of finding out that that person was was actually a uh, a double agent was not necessarily who who she thought he was uh yeah. and and I think also additionally that we will see something 
occur during the course of the season that will lead us to believe that the relationship between Burnham and Spock is irrevocably uh, destroyed. Uh, and mm-hmm. that will give that will give the writers a reason not to reintroduce Spock. Um, and it will give the canon enough space to make it uh, reasonable that Spock doesn't mention her in the future, which happens to be the past for us. Yeah. And, you know, this actually got me thinking because the way that the prequel is applied in in other fictional timelines or fictional universes, if you want to put it that way, okay. a, a failure to mention a, a, a character who is retconned in doesn't usually portend good things for that character in the future. Correct. And uh, I mean, the one that's, well, I, I probably shouldn't bring up the one oh, that's on my mind. Oh, yeah. Okay. All right. Well, <laughs> I, I, I don't want to bring up the one that's on my mind, but it, I mean, it, it usually doesn't bode I'll well. Say it. I'll say Cybok. Right. <laughs> you know, we have, we have talked a little bit about whether or not Cybok is going to show up. I mean, honestly, we've seen every other member of Sarek's house. Right. Why, why not? I mean, I think there's room for it, but because he's imaginary. <laughs> Rachel takes the Roddenberry approach to Star Trek five in that it is apocryphal to her. It's, it's uh, just all a fever dream. If I may, I think Spock is a very private guy. He didn't tell anybody that he was betrothed um, or or what Pon Far was or any of these things. And these were his best friends. And, um, you know, if it doesn't need to come up, uh, my guess is Spock isn't going to mention it so that we've never heard it before. Uh, Doesn't lead us one way or another. Uh, Spock has never mentioned that he's gone potty. But I assume that he goes to the bathroom. <laughs> yeah, that, that's no, that's an excellent point. I mean, if not only did he not tell them that he was betrothed, but he never told them about a half brother, which is canon, Rachel. It's true. <laughs> On my head. Okay, fair enough. But, I, but but either way, I mean, there's no reason to think that he would ever need to expound on the existence of Michael or their relationship. And since we know how Spock's life is going to go in the future, I'm going to be interested that, you know, once Spock actually gets incorporated into the show, how the characterization and what we see from him will ultimately sync up with the guy that we do know, because I'm sure that there's going to be some connective tissue there. Uh, But let's move along to, uh, to the second point. So the logic extremists are still, a pretty pivotal thorn in the side of the family of Sarek. And some Star Trek fans seem to be annoyed by their continuing existence, but I wanted to run something by you guys. Is it possible that this faction is extending from the misguided sect of Vulcans that were led by Administrator Vloss, and by extension, I guess, who he was kind of a puppet of the Romulan Empire, but is it possible that these Vulcans, these logic extremists are sort of left over from that rather interesting period of Vulcan history in the 22nd century that we saw in Enterprise? Rachel, we rewatched some of those or part of those episodes recently. Do you see any alignment with, uh, with these guys? I mean, it's possible. Yeah. I I don't, um, I, I don't really exactly remember the ins and outs of the political 
uh, alignments of everyone in that episode. It was like a perversion but, of the of the ideals of Serac. That was kind of what they went with. Like right. they had, although but they were the mainstream at that point. Right? Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Okay. That's what. Um, yeah, I mean that seems entirely possible. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess if if you're gonna have Vulcan extremists, they have to be like logic extremists, right? Because that's conceivably. Yeah, I don't know why that would annoy anybody. That makes sense to me. That I think what <laughs> so they have a different interpretation of logic. Well, I think what what annoys those like entrenched anti-discovery fans is that their extremism in their devotion to logic leads them to violence. Yeah, that's totally plausible. Yeah. Like, you can logic yourself into anything if anything, you think hard enough. Right. Um yeah. Extremism so. comes in many forms. Yes. Yeah. Why would Vulcans be uh be exempt from that? Uh Dave, this kind of seems like the kind of a fold that uh an EU story could play in. Is there enough plausible like if you were charged with writing the history of the logic extremists, is this a thread that you would draw? Do you think this is a plausible connection? Uh no, only in that I think they would be opposite. Now it's been a while since I've seen those Enterprise episodes, but if I remember correctly, it was uh, you know reunification early. Um, I don't, uh, if a logic extremist wouldn't look at the Romulans and say, Hey, they're uber logical. Let's join up with them. I think it would be in opposition to someone who would want to bring Romulans and Vulcans together. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, I also think it's a commentary on just sort of, uh, the notion that you can have a logical argument but if your premise isn't logical, it falls apart. And the logic extremists are extremely logical in their argument, but their premise is wrong. Um, and, and I think that's a philosophical commentary that maybe would be interesting to dive into uh, in a book. Um, mm-hmm. I, I, but I don't, I'll tell you, I think it's interesting that they exist just because I don't like any society. Uh, whether it's the Klingons or the Romulans or the Vulcans to be so monolithic in their thinking or haircuts um, <laughs> that they're, that they're, they don't have uh, individuals and groups with, with different thoughts and ideas. And I like mm-hmm. the idea that, uh, that there are some extremists on Vulcan and that they're doing interesting and horrible things, which are plot complications, which are nice for writers. <laughs> Absolutely. And a little uh, perhaps uncomfortably recognizable too. Uh, yes. in the modern world uh yeah well said cicero what do you think about that well you know it's it's kind of impossible to have a utopian society that also uh peddles in warships and um and you know the the vulcans definitely while are while they are explorers and uh they are uh, you know keep the key members that help uh, the humans who are the greatest thing that has ever happened to the universe, apparently, um, create the Federation of, you know, the UFP. It, it doesn't make it's illogical to believe that uh, they they have flown around um, with uh, ships that are capable of uh, violence and aggression and don't have. 
uh, people, people amongst themselves that would take the next step, um, flawed or not, you know, whether, whether their, their thesis statement is flawed or not, um, you can take that logic. And, and if you, if you say, uh, to a Vulcan, if, or if a Vulcan believes that because they are so logical, they are the best representatives to govern all species, uh, and and so we should either enslave enslave our own people, enslave dissidents, um, in in one way one way shape or form, and and the way to do that the most efficiently is by by doing it uh, via or the most expediently is is by doing it via uh, violent means. So mm-hmm. logic extremists make perfect sense to me. Yeah, and. Um... You know, the, the commentary aspect of it, you can't ignore just because the best Star Trek is usually of its time in one regard or another. And um, I really like, you know, the, the logic extremists haven't gotten a lot of play in the second season, but, you know, we got to see two pretty distinct flavors of extremism in season one, extending first from the logic extremists and then also from Takuvma and the philosophy that Takuma's followers had in strictly adhering to the ideals of Kalos. And uh, that's that's very ripe territory to explore, especially if the Federation is supposed to be a body uh, that represents moderation and compromise uh, in, its, in its best scenarios. I mean, compromise is the name of the game among most of the crew dynamics across the entire franchise. And... Uh, there's no reason to think that that wouldn't be a dynamic shared by the Federation at large. Obviously, that's a conclusion that I'm drawing, but I feel like it's a pretty reasonable one. Uh, but, you know, juxtaposing that moderation and compromise with extremism, whether it comes from a scary Klingon or a prim and proper Vulcan, is a possible source for very stark imagery that can stick with you. Uh, I remember being pretty disturbed when that Vulcan extremist aboard Sarek's shuttle was getting ready to detonate himself. Not only was I not expecting it, but you don't expect extremism to be so clean cut, I guess, which is also kind of a commentary on today in one respect. Right. So, yeah, I, I think it's it's pretty interesting. See, we dovetailed from enterprise continuity into the philosophical aim of what this could represent for the franchise at large in this episode specifically. That's awesome. I like it. Uh, well, let's move along with the plot. So Klingon Chancellor Laurel unveils the D7 battlecruiser as a symbol of a united Kronos to the houses, also showing us that Ash Tyler, formerly Voke, serves as the torchbearer and a direct advisor to the Chancellor. Later, Laurel introduces Ash Voke to the baby son that she and Voke had together. The leader of House Kor and father of Cole threatens to kill Ash Voke and their son, but in an elaborate battle between the two sides, Ash and Laurel manage to kill the traitor and his men with the help of Philippa Giorgio, now an operative of the elusive Section 31. To consolidate power, Laurel presents fake heads of her lover and son to the Klingon High Council, with the Council acclaiming her as mother of all Klingons. Oh boy, so I kind of condensed all of the, the Klingon stuff into just this part of the discussion, but more Klingon intrigue, 
is always interesting when taken from the discovery perspective. I know that sometimes the focus on Klingon politics in the first season became a little grating, particularly for Zaki. He, he, he it was kind of was that the dawn of Zaki's agony booth. It might have been. Yeah, might have been. It, it very well might have been. But what did you guys make of the way that the Klingon issues were presented here? Did you enjoy the way that they played out? Were they a little easier to follow, or did you see them as an as an impediment to the flow of the episode? Dave, what did you think? I was happy to see uh, more talking in English, um, <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and and not because I mean I, I appreciate it when it's in another language, but I got to say Klingon does not flow, and uh, it's it's far easier I think uh, for the actors to show emotion uh, when they're talking in English. Um, even if it's around those teeth. Um, I thought it was a nice, I like linear plot. I thought it was a fairly nice linear plot. Um, Mm -hmm. And I also got to say, I really like Ash in that he's got all these memories of another person, but none of the feelings. And what a struggle he's on. I, I, I hope we get to stick with that character and see more of that character because he's interesting. Yeah. No, totally agree. Rachel, how did this stuff play out for you? You were you joined Zaki pretty much in, in your criticism of the way that the Klingon stuff played out in this in the first season. Did that carry over here? Were well, you- I like their hair. <laughs> um I I guess like most of the episodes so far, I felt like this storyline of this episode in particular, like went by so blazingly fast. Mm -hmm. At one point, I think like it was like, I'd count, like I looked up and it had been 10 minutes and like four or five plot points had been like hit. (laughs) Like it was like, uh, Ash calls, uh, like Ash calls Michael. Ash has a son with Laurel. Um, the uncle is dead and this this is all like within like really fast like boom 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 and i'm i'm like okay Uh, like i don't know i mean i i'm this is it's not my job to uh make a tv episode so like i can't really offer any solutions right i just say that me as a viewer um i just i i felt like like uh, my hair was just blowing in the wind because I'm going <laughs> right. so quickly through all of, all of these things. So that's really my only complaint. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, it was for being as fast as it was, I was not confused. Mm-hmm. So I appreciate that. Um, and um, I don't know if this was supposed to be a backdoor pilot for the Section 31 uh, show. Mm-hmm. But maybe it was, although I think they they were on it next time on, so they're gonna. Yeah, 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 yeah. They'll be yeah. back. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I wasn't sure if this was supposed to be that or if it was like a, um, but it, it seems like it's gonna be continued. Mm-hmm. So, um, but yeah, I I found that interesting. Um, mm-hmm. I yeah, All I right. really enjoyed seeing Philippa Giorgio and her like uh, holographic Klingon outfit. Yeah, that was really uh, and really her googly cool. eyes with the baby. Right. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, um, no, seeing her again, I already knew that she, I think we all knew that she was already an ass kicker, but geez, that the, the brutality, you know, she seems right at home 
in in doing what she's doing. So I'm going to be interested to see more from her. Cicero, what did you think of this stuff? Well, I I, I think the first part is uh, glossing over the fact that Philippa Jojo convinced Laurel that uh, she had to get rid of and and you know what Dave Dave really brought up a great point about uh, Ash Volk Lieutenant Tyler uh, you know mm-hmm. Lieutenant Volk um, is which is that he is such a complex character because he's got all the memories of this person without any of the feelings and you look at Laurel who's got all of the feelings for uh the lover she left the 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 lover she destroyed basically uh to create ash tyler and and all of those feelings are still you know enveloped in this in this person who is now human outwardly but is but is the the first human uh klingon hybrid basically who's living these dual lives and he doesn't reciprocate and uh, Giorgio comes in and says, look, not only do you have to get rid of this dude you love and you're willing to fight the entire Klingon army uh, empire for, um, but you're also going to have to get rid of the baby, which is the, uh, you know, the living embodiment of the love from the love from the physical lover that you lost. Mm-hmm. You're going to have to get rid of both of them in order to uh continue to be the emperor of this of this empire that will tear itself apart so do you choose you know do you choose family over country basically and Mm -hmm. she chose country um and and while it was quick and and i you know i definitely do agree with with uh rachel about the uh speed with which they've they've kind of pushed through a lot of plot points so far in the season um the I, I understand why they did that, but I wish I'm hoping that going forward, we do get to see some of uh, Laurel's anguish with the choice, you know, with the, with the choice that she was forced essentially to make. Um, the the other thing that was was uh, quintessential, I think, in this little portion was the fact that uh, already throughout the course of the season, we you know, we kind of had the first episode kind of set the tone of introducing Pike and introducing everything that that happened with, uh, you know, Pike and the Enterprise and and setting up Spock and doing all that other stuff. The second episode kind of set the tone for how the season will be as a viewer, uh, where they changed it from this uh, serialized version uh, that was, you know, season one that was more like Game of Thrones, more like today's television, and made it more uh, made season two more like. Uh, the trek that we're used to, but this third episode also took the time to talk about those other characters that were very, very important towards the end of season one, uh, and and showed us exactly where they are in this particular point in time uh, mm-hmm. before they went on before they went on to back to the discovery and back to the crew and everything else. So that, yeah. I thought that was very important. Yeah, most definitely. I think that's a that's a really good point. Uh, well, you know, my brother, I mentioned him a couple of times before, but he, he was basically the one that got me into Star Trek and he watches Discovery, not, not on the day, but he, he absorbs the episodes pretty fast. And as soon as he watched this one, or in fact, I think it was while he was watching it, 
he his mind was blown by the way that uh, things shifted into English by morphing the subtitles. She sure. loved that. He texted me right in the moment to say how awesome that was. And I got a big kick out of that. But so know, they stole it- that from uh, they stole that from the seminal film from the late 90s or maybe early aughts. L. Ron Hubbard's Battlefield Earth. <laughs> so that's uh if if there was one thing and i you know i love travolta i love forrest whitaker um that movie was was a dumpster fire it was <laughs> it, it was the inhumans of motion pictures Ooh, whoa, that, <laughs> my guess is you can't say it was stolen because i'm not sure enough people watched that movie <laughs> to steal anything right <laughs> <laughs> um but yeah so that was one of the things that i really enjoyed about that film um, or the thing that I really enjoyed about that film was the fact that they they started with the you know with the crazy goofy uh, platform wearing alien race speaking in their own tongue, and then quickly uh, uh, with subtitles and then quickly morphing to English with a couple of lines of you know whatever the foreign language you know their alien language uh, as being the subtitles and then they continued to speak English, which was a way for them to let the viewer know they're still speaking their language, but we're, you know, we're tired of writing subtitles and you don't want to read them anyway. So here we yeah. go. Well, Hey, I mean, only steal from the best. Right? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Presuming, you know, it, it does qualify as theft, which Dave makes a very good argument that it doesn't, <laughs> but, uh, but no, I mean, um, the, I, I agree with Rachel's point in that, packing too much plot into an episode is something that we have seen from this show before. Yes. Right. I mean, that was a complaint that I think all of us had about the, the first season finale was that it just kind of, it just kind of ended or it came to an end rather abruptly and resolved the war a little too quickly for, for all of our liking. At least Um, giving us more minutes this time. There were some episodes that were very short last season. Yes, yes that's, that's true. But also, too, you know, I prefer that if we are going to get kind of a plot crash, if you want to call it that, I probably prefer that it happen early in the season as opposed to at the end of it Amen. for whatever that's worth, you know, presuming that maybe this means that the rest of the plot can breathe going forward. I mean, we'll, we'll get on to the to the next episode, to the fourth episode of the season in a, in a couple of minutes here. But uh that I think we we know pretty well that packing too much into an episode is not something that uh, that is often easy to overcome, especially when it has such a big story in front of it. And it seems like this is a particularly big one. If you know, I can extrapolate a little bit going going forward, but still still pretty cool. I like seeing the the Klingon politics and how. Section 31 is doing such Section 31 things by actually interfering in the uh, political affairs of a power in the galaxy that is not particularly friendly. But the posture right now with Laurel and leadership is kind of friendly to the Federation. It kind of brings up moments from history of the United States propping up leaders for nations that we weren't exactly on the friendliest of terms with, but we had friendly relations with unfriendly governments for times like the the Shah of Iran is what immediately comes to mind. But 
it's it's such a very section 31 thing to do and i hope that that portends a lot of really cool things not only for the rest of season two of this show but for the Giorgio show going forward right. but hey guys now it's time Pedantic continuity time. All right. Pedantic continuity time. (laughs) So I hadn't heard that yet. (laughs) Well, uh, so the D7 makes a canonical appearance predating its arrival in the original series as a symbol of unity for the Empire. Also, Klingons have hair. We kind of, yes. Rachel alluded to this. Klingons yes. have hair. Sorry, I spoiled you. <laughs> but uh, so Burnham made mention of Klingons having grown their hair out post-war. And for some reason, and Dave, I know that you saw this, a lot of people seem to have interpreted this as a retcon saying that they shave during wars. And I mean, the thing that just immediately came to my mind was that this was a byproduct potentially of Takuvma's religious extremism, like I talked about a couple of minutes ago. What do you guys think of the D7 nod and the addition of Klingon hair, Cicero? Well, uh, it it goes to show you, and this is going to generate a lot of hate for those people that hate listen to our show. Um <laughs> It, we do it, know that there are people out there that do that. Right. We so know for a fact, this this will generate a lot of that uh, hate, and that is canon doesn't matter that much. Um, yeah, and and this is why I say that um, it's canon is important, but it doesn't matter that much when you're when you're producing new content, right? Because they were able to, and and we'll talk about this in this episode. Uh, we talked about it very briefly in the first episode, and and in the fourth episode that we'll talk about in a few minutes, where there were one lines given that explained away uh, days, weeks, and maybe even months of outrage about uh, this show specifically. And it's positioning in within the timeline of the Star Trek universe, but also uh, it's meddling with established characters and a, a, a established character canon. Uh, they were able to say really quickly that you know uh, Pike Pike got new uniforms, you know, uh, or the that or Pike said that the Enterprise got the new uniforms. Boom. There you go. Immediately, you can talk about the differences between TOS uniforms and Discovery uniforms. Done. Mm -hmm. Then we talk about, oh, Klingon hair. And the Klingons have hair. And the reason that they have hair now is they're not at war. Boom. Done. You know, and you can speculate as to what that really means, and that's fine. And then in the the next episode, we'll talk about it really quickly, I'm sure. Uh, But uh, why uh, there are only view screens on the Enterprise? Yeah, uh, is 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 again a throwaway line. They but they add it, and I feel like each time they do these things, they kind of point at you. Uh, you know, Uncle Sam point at you, and then wink at you. 
And and so I mean, so for from from that perspective, like these things make sense. These one lines allow you to connect the dots. And it again shows that canon doesn't matter that much. It's still important, but it doesn't matter that much. Very interesting perspective. And see, I think Cicero, you are a little bit more, I guess, liberal than I am when it comes to adherence to canon because I think sure. canon is, is one of Star Trek's greatest strengths. Uh, but it doesn't. I think Discovery has made me come around on whether or not that should apply so strictly to aesthetics. Like I'm more like the the canon of events should be observed, and I don't think think that Discovery steps on anything. No. But, no, Dave. Dave, this is uh, this is perfect territory for you. Uh, what do you think of all of these thoughts? How do you think that um, that the connections made in this episode connected? And what's your philosophy? I guess on the canonicity of Discovery and what it observes when in terms of events and aesthetics and all of those things. Uh, my feeling has always been that any questions of canon should be given to Captain James R. Kirk <laughs> of the United Earth Space Probe Agency, who either has three nephews or one. <laughs> Very well said. Um, it's a television show uh, or a set of movies. Um, it, they're stories. They're all just stories. And if uh, I, I like continuity more than canon. Well said. Um, I, I I want there to be continuity, and in, quite frankly, some of the problems that I had with the first season is wasn't a canon issue. About, I don't care about uh, uh, um, how the ships look and how the uniforms look because we have to keep looking it looking like it's the future and mid-century Danish modern looked like the future in the 1960s but doesn't today. Um, but I, I had concerns about Sarek being Sarek. Um, and I'll be honest with you, one of the ways in which I sort of uh, fixed that in my own headcanon was, here's a guy who treats his human daughter completely differently than his half-human Vulcan son. Um, and <clears throat> uh, so there are certain ways that I could get around how Sarek was acting, although he did feel a little bit off for me. Um, uh, my my main problem with the people who are like, oh, but the D seven and the and the so and so and oh my god, it's just it's the set dressing. I'm telling you right now, as soon as Gene Roddenberry had budget, the Klingons didn't look like right, the Klingons. Sure. Right. Yeah. Um, and the reason for that is is Gene wanted them to look alien, and in the '60s, the only ha but I mean, Vulcaneers were expensive. That's why some of the Romulans wore helmets. <laughs> um, they they did the Klingons because hey, swarthy makeup and a mustache, we can do that pretty cheaply. I mean, you know, they they can afford now to make things look like these giant touch screens and all of this. So let's go yes. with it. I don't I don't think we should do machinations to try and explain stuff a way that isn't character related. It's character and story related stuff that I care about. Uh, not the look and feel and quite frankly, not even the cloaking device thing because Enterprise had cloaking devices. Well, they didn't have one, but a uh, long time ago, uh, the Romulans of right. that era that we didn't get to see, 
uh, had a cloaking. Obviously, the technology has been there for a long time. Why wouldn't the Klingons have a version of it? The idea is is that uh, you're always able to see through it every few years, mm-hmm. probably. Yeah. No. Oh, did I rant enough about that? Yeah, no, I'm sorry. Right. Hey. I've been, I've been, I've been really upset at the people who are like, "This isn't the the prime universe or the canon universe because blah 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 blah." Yeah, listen, they're all just stories, yeah. Bob. No, I think that that's well said. I mean, that's exactly the kind of tangent that I like people to go on in pedantic continuity time. So, no, much appreciated, and and I I, I largely agree with you, Rachel. You you have a a you generally like to stick to established events, at least when it comes to Star Trek. Uh, so what did you think of this Klingon stuff in this episode specifically? And what's the problem with the D7? Uh, I, you know, I haven't seen any complaints about the D7 oh, except... Okay. I don't, well, oh, okay. I have. That, that they mentioned that a previous ship that we saw in the first season was called the D7 and it looked totally different. Uh, um, yeah, you know, George Foreman named all his kids George. So, you know, like, yeah. they, they look distinct, but they're still named George. So, <laughs> look, I mean, I, I enjoyed the Klingons with hair. I didn't need them to explain why they now had hair. Yeah. Like, I would have assumed that, you know, they would. They heard me bitching that they didn't have any hair before and they look better with hair. And so they updated the, the design to make it a little bit cooler. Um, to, to be fair, they did say uh, when the first season started that they would be slowly moving toward, uh, you know, the, the original series right. that we remember. Um, but yeah, I for those who care, I'm glad that they have these little winks and nods. But um I don't mind that much yeah. anymore. Right. Yeah. Full disclosure too, last night Rachel and I were watching Broken Bow, the uh, the pilot episodes for Enterprise. And I, I pointed out to her that within, I don't know, 25 minutes, there were already something like three or four pretty big continuity discrepancies from things that had been established before. Right. Uh, you know, the, the fact that Klingon first contact happened in 2151, well, that doesn't really conflict with what Spock told us in Star Trek six. And right. they allude to Klingons having stealth technology, which you're kind of led to believe could be a cloak. And uh, so there's already, but I mean, you could pick that stuff apart and, I, I still think that that's a really solid set of episodes, regardless of all of that stuff. But uh, I mean, for those of us that do notice, I still think that Discovery is exercising generally more care to fit into things than even some of the the shows that Rick Berman ran. I mean, early seasons of Enterprise had those kinds of issues that they didn't really bother me per se, but I just detected them. And I guess I was just annoyed that I detected them, even though the, it, I, I guess I was annoyed that they weren't observing it. Like, why do I have to, isn't that your job? But either way that doesn't get in, in the way of enjoying the stories as long as the intent of the stories are good. And I'm still someone who gives enterprise a fair amount of leeway, but I think that discovery is doing and we've discussed this before, and Dave, I think that you would agree that things that are being alluded to in Discovery episodes 
are it's so evident that the writer's room of the show pays such strict attention to what we've seen before, at least when it comes to the events. The production design, the aesthetic, all of those things are very different. That doesn't bother me. I'm a comic book fan. I see aesthetics change all the time. A Batman has his new 52 costume, but that's a story that took place in the 70s. Well, but well, I don't care. Right. As long as the story is good. I think they mainly care um, about those events. I think sometimes they can be off on character. Um, but again, my James Kirk is different from another writer's sure. James Kirk. And they've got different writers in there. Um and I think the aesthetics, if 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 the show had looked like the cage, um, I, I don't think it would have uh, the newer fan base that it's getting. And I think it is getting a newer fan base. And I think you have to do that. Eventually, those of us who were uh, classic Star Trek fans from back in the day, uh, we're going to die yeah. off. Um, CBS wants Star Trek to live long and prosper. And to do that, you need to make new fans. And to them, it has to look like the future. It can't look like a 1950s serial, which, by the way, if you look at the cage, that's basically how it looked. Yep, absolutely. No, I couldn't agree more. I mean, that goes with any property under the sun, you know, and, and Star Trek is certainly no exception. If you want Star Trek to subsist, if you want it to continue, you need to bring in fresh blood and couldn't agree more. All right, well, let's uh, let's move along with the plot. Um, so, Giorgio takes Ashvok and the baby to a vessel crewed by Section 31, delivering the baby to a cloistered Klingon monastery and recruiting Ashvok into Section 31. Meanwhile, a sentient spore has grown within Ensign Tilly, causing her to hallucinate that she's talking to a dead schoolmate. Burnham deduces the cause, then Stamets pulls the fungal parasite out of Tilly using dark matter. Fungal parasite is then captured in the engineering lab. So kind of part two of, of pedantic continuity time, the Klingon monastery on Boreth makes its first referenced appearance in the 23rd century. A lot of stuff is happening, but let's address a major fan theory right up front. So we talked early on in the last season before Voke went through his transformation about this idea that Voke himself could have possibly been the albino Klingon that was seen in Deep Space Nine, the enemy that united Kor, Kang, and Koloth, along with Jadzia Dax in a blood oath of vengeance. What do you guys think now? Did you did you guys uh, maybe stick to the idea that Voke himself was the albino way back when? What do you think the likelihood is that this character could be referenced going forward? Uh, Dave, what do you think about that? Um, I, if this child is never going to, I mean, if cloistered and everything, I'm assuming that we're never going to see him again. And so I think they're just going to leave it as a question. And and maybe you make up that story in your own mind. I never thought that Voke was because I think that would have made him, uh, well, I guess core. And I guess it's around that time. I guess it could have been him, but I got to be honest with you. I, I never... I never put much into that theory unless there was some, something was going to come of it. And I didn't get the sense from the first season that they were trying to, you know, tie into everything, including DS9. Right. Sure. Very fair point. 
Cicero, uh, you seem to be a little excited, if memory serves, about this possible connection. What do you think about that now? Is it is has its time passed, or is it still something that you think could bear fruit? So, uh, I mean, there was there was definitely a time in the moment there there was a belief that if uh, you know once we revealed uh, who Javid Iqbal really was, uh, <laughs> that that we were going to get a return of Ash back into Volk. And once that became apparent that that was not happening, uh, and then immediately as I was watching this episode and, and watching, uh, you know, and knew the fate of the baby, 100% that baby is the albino from DS9. Mm. 100%. Take it to the wow. Jeez. Take it to the back. Throwing the, throwing the gauntlet throwing down. Throwing the gauntlet down. I don't, I don't do, I don't half steps. No half steps over in the home household, man. <laughs> Rachel, you like that episode quite a bit from Deep Space Nine. Do you yeah. think that there's a... And I thought as soon as I saw Vulcan, they were like, you're an albino. You're you jerk. And like, <laughs> I was like, oh, it's the albino. Uh, and then like, it, like Cicero said, it became apparent that Vulcan wasn't coming back. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, okay, well, I, and I even thought in the off season about this theory which i had been so proud of myself for thinking of (laughs) making that connection um and i thought about it and i was like man so the albino is just some random albino (laughs) that is another klingon albino well i guess there's probably a lot of klingon albinos you know whatever um i i don't know how common that is um, so I was like really happy as soon as I saw the baby, I thought, oh, okay, <laughs> that, I bet that's him. Um, and now I, yeah, I think a hundred percent. Okay. <laughs> like, I mean, it, but I don't know if they're ever like, they're probably never going to reference it. Do they right. have time? Yeah. Like they don't have time for that to happen. My thought was like, when I thought that Vogue was the albino, I thought that we were going to see some of the events that are referenced in that DS9 episode. Mm-hmm. Um, and I doubt that those events are within the time scope of discovery knowing how old the baby is right so we probably won't see them but it makes me happy it's not just some random albino it's um it's 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 the albino it's baby voke right it's yeah voke rel i mean as far as i remember and uh well i actually have the the memory alpha page so the the memory alpha page makes direct reference to 2290 as the year that uh that Kor Kang and Koloth collided with the albino which would be right near the end of the there's just a few years before the enterprise a is decommissioned uh so that that's pretty late i mean that's what 30 33 40 43 33 years yeah that's that's a long time. I mean, maybe in season seven, we'll. See. Well, they wouldn't have become friends with him as a baby. <laughs> that's that's true. I mean, maybe who knows? Maybe in season seven of Discovery, if it gets that far, God willing, hey, we'll see knock this on wood, little, baby. This little bastard of a kid who like pushes people over on Boreth and smiles about it, and you'll be like, ah, that little bastard of a kid is the albino. Like, I'm so smart. I know so many things. <laughs> 
but who knows? I mean, it's it's still a kind of a fun thing to talk about, though, and that's why I wanted to bring it up because, hey, they went out of their way to mention that he was an albino, and the last albino Klingon we were aware of was Deep Space Nine. But anyway, so I kind of backloaded all of the stuff with May, with the uh, the mycelial parasite, if you want to call her that. Right. Because I feel like it warrants a little more discussion. She seems to potentially be, and this might be me extrapolating. Maybe I'm drawing a, a, an early conclusion, but um, it, it seems like this could be the first domino to fall in the full closing of access to the mycelial network. And, you know, we've talked about the entrenched anti-discovery fans and they keep screaming to high heaven to anybody that'll listen about how the presence of the spore drive is some uber violation of the canon. Why didn't Voyager have access to it? And I think all of us know that that's kind of a stupid question considering where this show takes place. But you guys think that the spore drive's time is nearly up? Or do you think May herself could mean something in particular as we progress deeper into the season when it comes to potentially closing the door on the existence or at least the active practice of the spore drive? Rachel? Yeah, so May mentioned, she seemed to mention that the spore drive or the activation of the spore drive was doing something really bad to her brethren or her world or something. Right. Yeah, I think that was she, in the next episode, but yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, go for it. Well, I mean, it seems to me like the way this is going is that um, the the activating the spore drive does something really awful to the mycelial network and that they're going to have to sort of shut it down yeah um and classify it i suppose mm-hmm. so i i mean it stands to reason that they would think of some dire consequences to running the spore drive such that you can never have it be mentioned again especially if they're gonna if the writers are gonna take the time to explain why the klingons now have hair like they're gonna think of it oh yeah uh, so yeah. um yeah i don't think we have to worry about there being any continuity issues i'm sure that all will be explained in time sure absolutely dave what do you think yeah if there's one quote continuity issue unquote that uh i, I would assume discovery was going to fix from the start it would sure. be this um way to go out on a limb dave <laughs> we, we saw we saw the first step of it when the glen was destroyed yeah. um in uh, in the first season if you have two ships like this and now you only have one ship like this well something's gonna happen i mean heck they couldn't really even get it to work uh without stamets right. at this point um, so, uh, he's not going to live forever. Voyager wouldn't have had access yeah, to definitely. him. Very true. Cicero. Maybe, maybe that's the continuity right there is that Stamets was dead. Therefore the sport, <laughs> sport drive technology sport died drive. with him. Just right. Died. The sport drive. Yeah. Oh, um, <laughs> well, why didn't discovery have, have it? Cause Stamets was dead. <laughs> um, oh man brutal so so um here uh, maybe i'll be a lot more conservative uh in when we talk about the next episode but but here i'm just going uh i'm going balls to the walls man um so i'm gonna say something that i think is is also controversial and that uh and that is that the spore drive 
for discovery will never go away. They they will find a way to keep it going. Um, And the reason I say that is this. The spore drive is the conceit of this series. So, Mm -hmm. so every, every series has its little hook, Um, you know, and, and this is not, you know, this is not uh, relegated just to Star Trek. This is every show, Um, you know, like Knight Rider was about a guy who sang German songs all the time. But uh, in his in his off time, but it was also about a guy who rode in a robot car that was that seemed like it was sentient. But that wasn't enough. Like he couldn't just solve crimes in a robot car. It was a robot car that could uh, go really fast when you hit the turbo boost button. And so every episode, there was a moment where he hit the turbo boost button. And and as a as a kid, you got excited. And, you know, when when the lions form Voltron or when the Power Rangers form, you know, go from the Zords to the Megazord, like these those are those moments. And and nice. and that is part of uh, that is part of the conceit to discovery. Um, every Star Trek show that didn't have the Enterprise as the main ship had a conceit. DS9 was on a on a uh on a uh, uh you know on a space platform basically you know they were they were in a fort you know in space and that was the conceit discovery i mean not discovery uh voyager had to go to you know they had to go to the delta quadrant mm-hmm. um you know so like that was part of of them, you know, that was part of the journey, and they teased throughout all of Voyager them leaving the Delta Quadrant, but they couldn't. And this is the conceit of Discovery. It's not just about these characters; these characters are great. Um, it's not about the stories that they're telling; these stories are great. It's also about this ship, and the ship is unique because of this one thing, and that one thing can't go away. I think that's a fair argument to make. Um, yeah, I agree I, with that. It's a uh, you agree you agree with my argument, or that it was a fair argument to make. No, I, I agree with your <laughs> argument. I think uh, I think while they may be setting it up why we can't have it on the other ships, I think Discovery is going to keep it, and I, obviously it's going to have to stay a right. secret. I would guess maybe that's where Section Thirty One yeah. comes in. Well, I a, don't know. Yeah, that's a good point too. There's there's certainly a lot of possibilities there. I don't. The thing that I just think of when it comes to the spore drive, I guess, is uh, well, the 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 warp drive speed limit that was imposed for environmental concerns in right. the next generation. I think that's probably one of the closer uh, applications to to something like this. But that was quickly igno- ignored yeah. after about yes, four yes, episodes. That's oh, a, yeah. that is a very fair pr- point to to bring up because that's absolutely the truth. But also, too, I mean, Starfleet. And the Federation at large tend to freak out if they're playing if the, if it's discovered that someone in their ranks is playing God, and if they eventually figure out, as it kind of looks like they're about to, that using the spore drive could, could alter the destiny of a civilization uh, of some kind of civilization, I think they're going to see that as a huge red flag. That doesn't necessarily mean that the spore drive is going to go away. 
but it could potentially be used much less than it is. Uh, but I think that this, I, I still think that this is probably the beginning of some sort of change in the affairs of the spore drive that will line up with everything that we know uh, when it comes to the rest of the prime timeline. But either way, who who's to guess? I just think that it's, it's pretty interesting oh, considering how they're setting things up. We're to guess. I mean, that's the whole point of the show. Is well, yeah, I'm sure. We are to guess. I'm going to be uh, quite literal right now. Um, <laughs> but, but also I, I, I will say that I think you're right, Chris, that, uh, you know, its use will be uh, will will be diminished. Um, They're going to add more weight to the use of the spore drive as a oh, narrative, yeah. you know, so so narratively, when we the viewer see it being used, we're going to we are going to feel the weight of that choice. Yeah. Uh, when, when when whoever the next captain is going to be says right. black alert, right. all of us will collectively go, holy shit. Right. Like that's that's where they're going with this. This is such a threat that it requires instantaneous right. travel. Right. Uh, I vote for Saru yes. for captain. Thank you. Thank yeah, you. Dave. You and Cicero are absolutely on the same page when yes. it comes to that. Yes. Uh, Great minds. Absolutely. <laughs> well, so that's gonna do it for that discussion for uh for episode three of season two, Point of Light. So let's move along, moving right along, as Kermit the Frog once said to Season 2, Episode 4, An Obel for Karen. So, Episode 4, Aboard Discovery. Captain Pike welcomes aboard his executive officer from the Enterprise, Number 1, who offers him an update on the diagnosis and repairs taking place aboard the disabled ship. Number one details that the holographic messaging system contributed to the cascading systems failure, and Pike orders the system to be gutted from the ship. Number one also details that she dug a little deeper into the case surrounding Spock, thinking that something doesn't add up, and that she's not willing to give up Spock without a fight. So this is a pretty momentous occasion for obvious reasons, as it's the first time we've seen number one in new story material since the original Star Trek pilot episode, The Cage. What did you think, guys? The first time that new footage for this character was shot since 1964. What do you make of Rebecca Romaine as number one? Dave, kick us off. I thought she was great. Um, I definitely sensed uh, uh, that she had seen the performance um, and uh, without trying to mimic it, was trying to uh, sort of be that character. Um, and I totally want a uh, Pike number one uh, Spock and whomever else uh, series um, on the Enterprise. If they're creating this series and that series, they can create that series. I oh, want sure. to see it. No argument here. Rachel, you're kind of a fan of number one. So what did you think of her appearance here? Uh, seemed like the same character to me yeah so yeah i was really happy and i, I was happy that they kind of added a few things in like she people over favors mm -hmm. she's a good officer that kind of thing yeah so um i hope we see more of her i do too yeah i think we will i can't it would be nice if she head. could have a name no, yeah uh, <laughs> <laughs> we'll get to that Cicero, number one. What you There's a lot of fans who are glad oh, otherwise. Oh, 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 okay. There you go. <laughs> Cicero, what did you make of number one? 
man, I said I was going to be conservative when we talked about this episode, but um, you know, <laughs> so right off the bat, like it's, uh, man, I love the performance, mm-hmm. um, but I felt it was so wasted right there, um, uh, because she literally beamed onto the ship, walked down a hallway had a conversation and was never seen again. Um, and, and to me, I, I felt like it was one of those moments where, where, Oh, Hey guys, number one is on the ship. And it was, so to me, it was like, if we went to a dinner uh, that was, you know, price fix menu and we had all of these courses, but this one, the chef that we were going to, uh, is known for a signature dish, and we knew that was going to be the main course. That uh, the number one, uh, number one would be the serving right before that main course. Mm. Um, it was it was good, but it 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 really didn't do anything. Um, as far as as far as I felt, uh, like th- she, you know, she came in to talk about why start why on TOS they use view screens, mm-hmm. and it's because of this this particular moment. You know, it was two lines of dialogue, and then she she only reaffirmed that basically the Enterprise, the crew of the Enterprise, and or at least the command structure of the Enterprise was completely. Uh, on board with the fact that that uh, that uh, Spock is getting the shaft, and that they are going to fight for their boy, which was evident already. Uh, I, I, I want to disagree okay. with him. Okay, please, please disagree with me. Um, but yeah, so like I really enjoyed her, but I just wanted to get to the main course of this of this early part of the season, which is Spock. Spock is the signature dish. Okay. And I thought that's what we were just doing. They were like, oh, we gave you Pike. You know, we gave you Amanda. We gave you, uh, now we gave you number one. Next up is Spock. You know it's coming. And, <laughs> and, and, that's, and that's where we were. Please send me your disagreements, Dave. Get him, Dave. Well, I, I don't disagree that that's what they're doing and they're, they're sort of drawing out Spock. Um, but I didn't think that it was okay. a waste. Um, I... I wanted to see that uh, the crew was uh, behind not just, uh, you know, they believe in Spock, uh, but I I saw some character development. Here's someone who's, and Pike doesn't necessarily like it, is willing to break some regulations and bend some rules, but he likes it. He doesn't like it, but he likes it. I thought that was very cool. I saw a cool dynamic there that thankfully didn't speak to the um, I, 1964, I can't get used to a woman right. on the bridge. Uh, you're accepted, of course, number one. Um, I saw a real connection, the same sort of connection between Pike and number one as you've seen with Picard and Riker or, or, or Kirk and Spock. Or, or really, I, I, I feel that also between uh, Saru and Burnham. And, and that's why I hope they're setting him up to yeah, be the captain. Let's hope. Um, but the other thing that I think is important about seeing her is that we kind of want to see the Enterprise more 
and it's being explained why we're not. Um, and I think that's yeah. okay. Because why wouldn't he go back to his other ship if right. it's ready? Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, I think that's well said. I mean, for what it's worth, I, I loved this too. I mean, um, Cicero, I don't think that I, – I, I would never say that you are wrong because I don't oh, you, believe that. You no, could I do don't, that. I don't believe that you are wrong. I, it's just I, – I could actually literally say that I have been waiting my entire life to see more number one. Sure. I mean – 52 plus years have, have gone by 54 plus years have gone by since this character actually sort of, I mean, she was one of the inaugural Star Trek characters, even in that one episode. And I love the cage to death, but she in particular showed such an immense amount of potential that was then left totally unexplored for the remainder of the franchise until now. And I was so satisfied with just finally getting another glimpse. I don't think that we've seen the last of her. Right. Uh, in fact, that might even be confirmed. I don't know that for a fact off the top of my head. But Oh, well, if this was the only one and able billing it, this would be a horrible, horrible misstep. Well, and she's by, a by, by the crew. Rebecca Romaine is a pretty high profile performer to get right. to for, right. for a part like this. Right. So I would. Oh, she's a Star Trek fan, isn't I think she? I would assume so. She's, I think yeah, she, she is. seemed to to indicate that she was, particularly after she got cast. I know, but uh, I mean, as soon as they they even alluded to the fact that she was going to be included, I was totally on board because that character just seems like she has a, a a great level of of potential to explore and. Even though we only got just a little bit of her, that's certainly a whole hell of a lot more from her than we've gotten in the over the course of the last half century. Sure. So, and, and by the way, Rachel, I don't want to hear her name as a throwaway. I I wanna I want to hear her name when uh, there's a good reason for it, or hopefully in um, a Pike on the Enterprise series. Okay, so like a, you want it to be like set up as a big reveal. Uh, I want it to be. Uh, not the same kind of throwaway moment as why we don't have um, uh, holograms on the Enterprise. How about you know? this, Dave? Uh, the way that it was a, the way that Neota's name was established. How about something like that? Yeah, something like that. There you that go. was a workup, you know, over the course of that movie, and that was one of those rare moments where the 2009 movie established something uniformly across the entire franchise, right. which was cool. Right. But uh, yeah. so so Chris, Chris, I will ask this of you on behalf of the rest of the panel. OK. Was there anything and this is a genuine question and not necessarily one that challenges. Um, uh, so I put everybody on their guard. OK. Was there anything that happened during the course of that number one interaction that a couldn't have been, uh, you know, was there a message that was conveyed that couldn't have been conveyed uh, via another member of that crew, of the Enterprise crew to Captain Pike? Um, and or, um, as Dave talked about the relationship between uh, Pike and number one and that that rapport and that chemistry, um, or was there any portion of, uh, did you glean new type of, uh, chemistry or 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 uh, like personality traits from from Pike 
that you hadn't already gleaned before from his relationship with Burnham? Yes. Okay. Uh, the, the second part of your question I'll answer first. Uh, we had only seen up to this point, the perspective of a new crew starting to interact with a new captain mm-hmm. and the establishment of the rapport between number one and Pike. I mean, we, we sort of saw the, the two other crew members of the enterprise when they came aboard in the season premiere, but right, right. it was different because these two people knew each other. They worked well together and had an established line of accomplishments together. So some of that was my own application, admittedly, but also too the the playfulness that they exhibited to each other, particularly the interaction about Pike not liking holograms because they look like ghosts, and number one just kind of going, hmm, you know, and she she expected him to say that. I think that even oh, right. in that small nugget of an interaction, there was something there that indicated that partnership that, in my mind, is legendary even if it might not be legendary in, in some other people's minds. Um, but also too, just the way that she conducted herself and see like her food choices, right? I mean, uh, the, the cheeseburger and fries with the habanero sauce, I think right. it was, uh, the, the heavy food that she ate is also an indicator of, of part of her personality that we'd never seen before. They certainly didn't explore that in the cage. And, it showed that even this pretty serious character also has a level of fierceness because she is not only willing to break the law, but she is willing to not give up Spock without a fight. And I really appreciated that. So, well, we're also seeing, I think, why Spock was willing to throw away his career for Pike. Sure. Here's, here's a crew who perhaps are willing to throw away their careers for Spock. Yeah. Yeah. That's very well said. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I think that that generally encompasses my perspective on number one, but I'm also admittedly biased because I've wanted to see this character again for literally my whole life. So take that for what you will. But uh, let's move along with the plot. So in the captain's ready room, Pike and Burnham learn that number one has provided Pike with the course heading for the shuttlecraft Spock stole in his escape from Starbase 5. Pike wants Burnham to extend an olive branch to her adoptive brother, but she seems to be nervous about the prospect because of possible emotional abuse she may have inflicted on him and thinks she'll make things worse. Right at that moment, Discovery is plucked from warp by an unknown object and endures major damage. So this was something that was alluded to as well in in, um, in Burnham's conversation with Amanda Grayson when she was aboard Discovery. But the point I want to bring up is totally at the credit of Zaki because he brought something up when we were preparing to discuss season two that I think might actually begin to happen or it's starting to happen. Zaki once told this panel that he thought it would be unwise for the creative team behind Discovery to create a sense of antagonism between Burnham and Spock because there's no way in the minds of the adulation of fans for Burnham to win that fight. It puts Burnham on an immediate back foot and any conflict between the two, Spock is going to have the advantage because he's the known entity. He's Spock. He's one of the most defining pillars of the entire franchise. And Burnham will just be at an, at an immediate disadvantage if there's any kind of antagonism created between the two. So do you guys think that this is a good way to go in exploring this relationship or do you agree with Zaki? Would you have preferred another path be taken? I know we talked about this a little bit at the top of the show, 
But what do you think about this idea that, well, if you have to choose between Michael Burnham and Spock, aren't you just going to choose Spock? Rachel. Well, yeah, of course you're going to choose Spock. It seems like what they're setting up is that um, Burnham is the bad guy here, but she is Mm self-aware. So she did something intentionally to drive him away that was really bad and potentially abusive. Mm -hmm. Um, But she had a reason behind it. As Dave said, it was out of love. Yeah, it was out of love. And she is aware and some somewhat tortured perhaps by this decision uh, to take these actions, whatever she did. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that kind of sets her up as the bad guy. If you have to cast it like that. Right. Um, so is, I think, how about this? Is it a binary equation or does it have to well, be? No, that's, that's what I was going to say is that, I think the uh, the sort of resolution to that conflict of, of you always taking Spock's side in any um, in any disagreement is if you have a scenario where they're both wrong. Sure. Right. Um, so I I mean I could see like her trying to apologize and he doesn't want to accept it, but you see where both of them are coming from, and. Um, you know, then it, it works. Right. Mm. So yeah, I don't think there's any need for us to be turned against Spock to understand what's going on in the relationship dynamic here. Very well said. Cicero, what do you think? Is it a binary choice between the two or, uh, or do you agree with Rachel that it, it could go in a different direction? Hashtag Rachel is right. Um, it, it is, it's, uh, I, I think that Zaki is correct in in so much you know in so much as saying as saying that uh, fans will always choose Spock, mm-hmm. and and that's okay. I think that goes back to my you know to one of my earlier points, which is that uh, Burnham will have this uh, tragic you know be the tortured soul. She will continue to be tortured. Uh, I think throughout this series, and you will. I think they're they would be smart to create the writers that uh, that is would be smart to create this level of nuance to this character that allows you to look at her complexly um, with with a level of complexity where where you can say, oh, yes, yeah, she definitely did this thing to one of my favorite characters in in all of, you know, all of pop culture lore uh, in Spock that drove him away and, and kind of informed who he is. And I, you know, I don't necessarily appreciate her for that, but now I understand why she did it. Um, and, and I can empathize with not only that decision, but, but several of the decisions that I've seen her uh, experience over the hopefully several years that I get to live with this character. So, um, mm-hmm. yeah, so I think, you know, I think there is, uh, there's, you know, there are lots of layers there and it, and it definitely isn't a binary choice. Okay. Well expressed as always. Dave, what do you think about that? Is, is this a, a binary choice between 
someone you know so well and someone who's relatively new to the table, or, or are you in an agreement with Cicero and Rachel? I'm in agreement with Cicero and Rachel, which which sort of puts me in agreement with Zachy as well, in that Spock would be uh, the one you choose, which is why I think it would be – this is going to sound weird. Um, I don't think it's about us. Yeah. Um, I, think, I think this is about their relationship, which, by the way – this is one messed up family. <laughs> sure. Um, Sarah, Amanda, um, uh, uh, Michael, and Spock are all very, very messed up, and they've done it basically to each other. Yeah. Um, and that <laughs> that's, I don't know, that's a lot like a lot of families out there. Um, I find the whole, interestingly enough, uh, I guess there's only one and a half uh, non-humans in the group, uh, but it's a very human sort of a, a family story. Um, and by the way, torturing your characters is just interesting. Um, Kirk was at his most interesting when he was that, you know, no beach to walk on guy or when he was obsessed with something or uh, feeling old in Star Trek Two or whatever. Um, uh, I've written two books where I've put Spock through hell uh, because that's interesting. Um, and, uh, and, and uh, like I say, uh, I don't know that it's anybody's particular fault and I don't want them to necessarily resolve it. I just want each of them to walk away with a better understanding of the other person at the end. And that doesn't mean by the way, that everything's worked out. Um, something I really want to talk about is Amanda's, uh, anger. Um, I guess it's in yes. the previous episode yes. at Michael where she kisses her, yeah. by the way, which is my wife turned to me and said, that's a mama bear moment. She was basically just saying, I'm upset with you. We are going to discuss this later, right. but right. I love you. Right. <laughs> and um, I think uh, I really liked yeah. Amanda yeah. <laughs> in that moment, um, even though she well, it's it's funny. Michael uh, says that she did something to push Spock away. But uh, I think Amanda's upset because she sure. did the same thing. And both of them expected the other one to right. not do that. Sure. Right. Like I said, yeah. they're messed up. <laughs> Especially when you throw Aichaya into the mix. Yeah. Oh, don't make me cry. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I you guys bring up very compelling points. Uh, I'm, I'm not going to lie. I am a little, I guess, miffed at the idea that this is an antagonism uh, because I expressed a year ago that I was really hoping that they would just kind of take things into a different direction. But really at the end of the day, there's probably no other way this could have played out if uh, considering everything that we know about Spock and now what we know about Michael, even what we knew about Michael in the first season, uh, creating this kind of a dynamic between them uh it, it just makes sense. I think it's the path of least resistance, which is probably what kind of miffed me about it when thinking a year ago about what they were going to do and exploring their relationship. But they need not do this creative wizardry or, or back handsprings or whatever it is to to dance around the idea of um, of some form of resentment on one side or both. Uh, but yeah, I mean, Dave, you're absolutely right. This is about them. This is about the journey that they both go on in becoming more complete people. Uh, Michael has the benefit of being probably in a more complete position just because she's older 
and we know that Spock goes on an entire journey of self-discovery over the course of the rest of his life. He's not even really settled into his human half until he dies and comes back and starts to become more comfortable with that half of himself. We're not going to see that side of him resolved this early in his life. This is a Spock who is in a more tumultuous place than potentially we've ever seen him before. And understanding that, I think, is key, at least for me personally, to get around this idea of being disappointed that they're going with the resentment angle. I just want to disagree briefly. I think Spock found his balance after the motion picture, not after he died. Okay, in Star that's, Trek that's a fair point. I mean, I. Because in Star Trek II, he actually says things like, were I to invoke logic, True. as opposed to, um, uh, it seems to be a choice for right. him and after we, that. After trying to go through Kolinar, seeing that extreme might have just pushed him a little. Well, over the course of the motion picture, we see him embrace his human side more. Not only does he weep, but he's trying to express to Admiral Kirk, you know, just the the understanding that physical contact can bring, which is a very kind of poetic, non-Vulcan way of trying to explain something. So yeah, I th- upon further reflection, I, I think you're right. I agree with you. But either way, that's still a long time from now in the in in the scheme of the uh, of of the chronology. So how old is he? In this? He was born in. He's like 23, 24. He's close. I think he's 26 or 7 because I think he was born in 2230 and this is 2257. And Vulcans live a long time. I know that I wasn't fully cooked until I was in my 30s. Yeah. Yeah. Very well. I'm still not fully cooked now. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm in my, I'm about to be in my mid 40s. Oh, damn. I'm 49. I'm in my crumbling stage. <laughs> oh man. Well, either way, though, I mean, that, I, I like that. That was, that was a good point of discussion. But uh, but let, let, let's move along. So, while trying to break free of the sphere's grip, Discovery's crew determines that the sphere itself is actually an ancient living being that has gathered gargantuan amounts of data about the galaxy, and it starts to transmit that data to Discovery just before dying. And I know that. condensing all of the stuff that happened there. I know that I'm kind of glossing over the fact that it presented a problem for the crew to solve, but it showed uh, the way that they react in a crisis scenario and ultimately got them to the point where they understand exactly what this thing is trying to do and how it's trying to interact with them. And I have to say, I was really impressed with the way that this episode took a pretty longstanding trope of the franchise in first contact and flipped it in such a way that it made it tragic and emotionally engaging while also making for a unique plot point. So what did you guys make of this being? Were you satisfied with the way that the show interpreted Last Contact? And full disclosure, I always love in this franchise when a thought-to-be-bad alien is being shown to be benevolent through greater understanding. But Cicero, what did you think of this this creature? So they, they took two tropes, as you kind of alluded to, Chris. Uh, they took two classic Star Trek tropes um, and and completely turned them on their head. Uh, much the same that they did, much like they did in uh, the episode where we had the actual first contact that turned out to not be uh, first contact in this, in the, what was that, the second episode? Yeah, it was the second mm-hmm. episode. Um, yeah. And uh, I, I absolutely loved it. I adore the fact that not only do we get to see 
this Trek crew uh, involved so far in Trek-like scenarios, uh, but we get to see them done in such different ways. And I'm so looking forward to watching this crew uh, explore these same types of tropes that we've seen in, you know, please let's, let's have all sorts of, uh, you know, popular Star Trek tropes done remixed for discovery. Continue Mm -hmm. the trope remixing. I'm here for it. Hashtag trope remix. (laughs) Well said, Dave, what did you make of last contact and everything that came with it? I loved it. I, I really did. Um, although I, I, I think it's probably not the first time we've seen Last Contact. Um, I think probably Inner Light. Yeah, is, uh, yeah. Uh, TNG is kind of. And I think probably Masks would fit oh, that. Geez. <laughs> um, but that doesn't mean, I mean, how many yeah, stories are there? Um, so, but this was a unique way uh, to tell it. A unique way to to fit in um, uh, uh, some some real uh, change in uh, yeah. Saru's character, um, and in and and seeing how uh, his relationship with Burnham has developed, um, and I'm really excited to see what this new, not so fearful and feeling powerful Saru mm. might be like. I, like I say, I really hope they're setting him up to be the captain. I'd love to see He's that. Certainly been through the ringer. That's for damn sure. Oh, uh, also, uh, uh, yeah. Before you get to to uh, more people, again, we get to see the short treks bear fruit. Uh, right. With, oh, we'll, we'll get to that. Okay. We'll get. Sorry, to sorry, that. sorry, sorry, sorry. Yes. No, 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 no. This is perfectly valid. But yes, you're absolutely right. Rachel, last contact. What did you make of it? Yeah, I mean, I didn't see it so much as a uh twist on the first contact trope as a as a uh scary alien is actually not scary trope mm-hmm. and everything is wrong with the ship trope right. so triple trope um, <laughs> yeah yeah uh, disaster is that, yeah I, I don't even know if that happened multiple no it also ha- happened another time right oh yeah uh, everything is wrong with the ship um year of hell comes to yes, mind exactly but, I mean, um so yeah i i like it mm-hmm. thought it was familiar um went by a little bit fast again <laughs> um, but yeah i mean i just f- wish sometimes they would linger a little bit on certain moments but they did in the saru subplot um to some extent right everything so. else was you know that's an interesting point though because everything else was kind of moving at a breakneck pace except for that stuff right? yeah which was yeah. A, a, another element of pretty impeccable design i think but yeah and you know dave you're absolutely right in bringing up inner light um i prefer not to think about masks generally but that's still <laughs> valid uh, <laughs> same here but I, I i liked how it actually used the what mess is mess not so bad <laughs> you always say that about tng yeah, yeah right even shades of gray isn't that bad to you anymore was it that bad i want as far <laughs> I didn't say I wouldn't watch it if it was on. 
I just don't like to think of it that often. Fair, fair enough. But I mean, I, I like how it actually used the words last contact, I guess. It, 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 it made it more explicit, like an explicit kind of inversion on the trope. And that's, I think that's what I appreciated too, that it actually spelled it out by, by twisting it that way. But also too, I mean, it's just, it's what I like to see from the, uh, no pun intended, from the discovering side of Star Trek, you know, actually coming to a greater level of understanding about something that is alien to them, uh, that leads them to a conclusion of actual benevolence instead of the, it, it commands them to put aside their instinct to shoot the thing that is unfamiliar, uh, and forces them to actually think through, uh, even though Pike oh, yeah, was about well, to. Yeah, he wanted to, and he would have, but he he used his command wisdom in a way that did not do that and let the scientists do their job to actually come to a fuller conclusion about the thing that was in front of them. And I love Feels like Star Trek, doesn't it? Exactly. Right. I couldn't have put it better myself. It is it's it is trekking through the stars in <laughs> in a way that I love to see. And uh, I mean, as much as you can criticize aspects of the franchise that are a little too trigger happy. As long as you pepper stuff like this in, uh, it doesn't have to be every episode, but as long as it's there, I'm going to be happy. And that was, that's what uh, I think of when I think of this, this plot. So let's move along again to, uh, before you do, I have a really quick comment of something you just said. It made me think of it. Um, you know, as long as this stuff is, you know, peppered in there. Um, if we look back to, any episode of of any of these franchise shows, mm-hmm. I gotta say, there are things that stick out to me in really bad plots. Um, Bread and Circuses was a first, I think it was first season episode. Yeah, um, uh, that's stupid. <laughs> I mean, it's a Rome, it's a nineteen sixties Rome equivalent, which is just a dumb idea. But that episode is totally worth it for. Uh, the scene between McCoy and Spock in the in the jail cell. Right, yeah, um, right. and I think we forget that we forget that the original Star Trek had some goofy stuff going on um, that didn't make a lot of sense, but it was the characters that we connected with. Absolutely, yes, yeah. very well said. I mean, it speaks to to the best of the franchise, at least when it, it in its intent to tell stories about aspects of humanity by slapping green paint on them. And this uh, is why Rachel likes masks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, oh boy. We're going to have to, maybe we'll have to do a debriefs favorites and bring up masks for some reason. Right. Oh uh, gosh. My favorite. <laughs> well, semi favorites. <laughs> we'll find this, a way. Yeah. That. Debriefs. Not so bad. <laughs> That's a good one. All right, well, let's move along with the plot. So Saru enters Vaharai, a Kelpian terminal biological process. But after the sphere dies, he recovers and finds himself physically and emotionally improved. Saru spent much of the episode preparing for his imminent death, a practice which we know is intimately familiar to he and his kind. And after the entity releases Discovery and its crew, he learns that his once thought terminal death process that he thought was applied to his entire species has actually unshackled him from the fear he'd grown accustomed to his entire life. 
His threat ganglia fall away and he has a newfound resolve and he's seriously considering changing the destiny of his people to tell them that everything they once thought about themselves is just the beginning of their existence and not the end of it. And the conclusion that he draws is that it might be worth breaking the prime directive in order to return his people's destiny to them. Holy shit. <laughs> this hit me square in the chest. And I guess, you know, now we know what the brightest star short was. Cicero talked about this just a couple minutes ago. So guys, run through your thoughts specifically for me on this new significant addition to the arc of not just Saru, but the Kelpian people at large, especially considering what we learned about them in the short trek. So Dave, you already alluded to your thoughts about this, but expand on them. What do you, what do you think this could mean? Uh, do you think that the story is going to go there when it comes to actually breaking general order one, but what about just the thematic games? How did it connect with you? Uh, it, well, I, I love Saru. And so, um, like I say, the first thing that I really thought was they're setting him up for captain, but I hadn't actually thought uh, that he's really going to do anything. Right. <laughs> um, but at the same time, I guess they did build a set, um, you know, and everything for the planet. So I'm guessing, I'm, I'm guessing that we're going to see something. Um, if not this season, next season. Well, did he, he looked pissed though at the end? Like once he realized what he had gone through, right? Did he not look just pissed to high heaven? Yeah, Boy. he looked determined. He did. Yeah, determined. Yeah. Determined is probably a good way to yeah. put it. But also, I think he's. I think he feels like he's he's found himself. I mean, his basic implication was he's matured, and the is it the Baul? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, the Baul are keeping uh, his people um, uh, uh, immature, I guess. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, although I got to tell you, I'm very confused by they're Kelpians, but they're from Kaminar, and the Baul are there. Uh, <laughs> nobody, I mean, I, I guess the planet shouldn't be called Kelpia, but it confuses well, me. Well, because they're uh, kelp farmers. What are you talking about? They're. They, 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 yeah, they farm kelp. That's when we first saw more Kelpians uh, in the prime universe. They were in the, you know, in the marshes grabbing kelp. Out oh, of, I guess they were. Yeah. Oh my out god! Of, into the into the baskets. So you know, it is not. It is not who they. It, what they do is who they are. Well, you know, and I'm crossing the streams a little bit here, but I, I kind of had the same incongruous reaction i guess to kashik being the home yes. planet of, of, the Wookie. of the Wookiees. yeah right it's like where, where, did, where did that come from exactly but why aren't they from Wookiee? right yeah. well who are the kashikians <laughs> yeah right yeah what happened to them right it's a good it's a good question yeah. uh maybe maybe the Wookiees were one day like the kelpians but then they took over the planet right. who knows but uh the Wookiees ate them right. <laughs> there you go yeah well, uh, so Cicero, I mean, you, you've often talked about your love of Saru as a right. character and, right. and how you hope. I mean, oh, man, I, I was really sure for a second there that we weren't going to see him again. But how did you go on the journey that this episode presented? And what do you think it means for the future of he and his people potentially? All right. So uh, I, I just I'm going to give everybody a warning. Um, apparently, this episode, Cicero Holmes was played by a pod person um, because <laughs> so I'm so conflicted about um, what 
what transpired. First, I was on the ride, um, wholly believing and hoping that we weren't going to see the death of Saru by the end of the episode because it just it just didn't feel right. Um, and and so I'm glad that that part didn't happen. But in a way, maybe it did because the old Saru is dead. The old Saru is dead. And I don't know if that's a good thing um, because part of what made Saru who he was, was the fact that he constantly did live in fear and he was constantly battling his instinct to be a great commander, to be a great leader. Um, and but I think the fear didn't hold him back as much as it made him think. Um, I would hope it's going to be a mixed bag. So, mm. so, and and so, I think we're we're definitely going back to the home world that is not called Kelpia. Um, and, and, and we're going back this season because the set's already built and the makeup is already done. We're not going to save that for next season. Mm-hmm. Um, and he, all the makeup being done is a good point. Yeah. And, and he, he is, uh, he is going to try and Moses his way through his people. But the thing, fundamental thing that he doesn't understand or he won't understand until we get there is that the uh, process with which, uh, through which he went was unique to him. And that is, where, that is how he got to where he is today. And they don't, the Kelpians are completely ignorant to the world or to the galaxy that surrounds them. And he is informed by all of that knowledge. Mm. And it was all of that knowledge along with the things that were happening in that particular moment through the course of this episode that got him to that monumental point where he eschewed his fear uh, and, and wanted to die with grace uh, and, and, you know, confessed everything to, to Burnham, his surrogate sister. Um, and, and those are things that no other Kelpian has ever experienced or will ever experience. And they will reject him out outright first, his father, and then ultimately his sister. Yeah. Mm. That's, that's what I've been doing it's all day today. I don't know. You know, I got to get, well, I hope that's all right. I like it. Oh, Hey, it's good, man. No, it's good. It would definitely be powerful. That's for sure. I, you can't ever take away from from the detail of Cicero's predictions because uh, when he's right, he's really right. And even if it might not quite align with what he predicts, it's oh, still kind you. of on the right track. Cicero is a very smart man, and you, you never discount what he has to say. Uh, Rachel, what did this journey look like for you? Were you pretty – into it and what do you think of how this could potentially line up for Saru's future and the future of his people? Yeah, well, Doug Jones is a busy guy, so I was uh, <laughs> thinking, well, they, maybe he has something else to do. They're going <laughs> to kill him off of this. Um, but no, he didn't die. Um, and I'm happy about that. Um, I'm excited about it. I think it's uh, interesting that the, you know, he had kind of 
been of the mindset that Kelpians were just like this, like they were just sort of destined to live in this manner. Mm-hmm. Um, and he found out that that was not the case and that they are being oppressed by the Ba'ul intentionally um, and kept ignorant uh, as t- with regards to their own potential. Um so, you know, he's kind of like woke Saru now. Right. <laughs> <laughs> he knows the truth. And I I don't know how, if you had that knowledge, how you could not at least try to do something to change the situation for sure. all of your people. Sure. Because it's not the natural order of things. It's a... a you know, a system that is set up that is intentionally oppressing them. Um, And I think that that has many, that's very uh, fertile ground for many very Star Trek-y kind of stories you could tell. Yeah. Uh, One of of which is certainly what Cicero kind of outlined in his predictions is that like, you, you know, you go back and you can say over and over again, like, this is what, you know, you're being oppressed, this is bad. And if they're not willing to hear it, then nothing could change. Right. Um, but there's a lot of other avenues that could be explored too. And I'm looking forward to those being explored. Yeah. Yeah. I guess you could say potentially that it could come down to whether they decide to solve systemic oppression or to illustrate what it looks like in the world that we live in. Right. Right. And uh, right. I, I honestly don't know which way they could go with it. But yeah, I, I mean, I think I agree with Cicero and with Dave that showing what it actually, what, what usually happens in the real world when uh, trying to expose a kind of systemic oppression, it's like a rejection of the idea that the person being oppressed is actually being oppressed. Right. And uh, yeah. That but would... it also leads to instability, right? And so oh, sure. that's the thing right. is that right. they have this like very stable sort of peaceful system that right. is actually quite violent towards the Kelpians, but nobody really realizes it. Right. Um, so sort of upsetting that could look like chaos, right? And but if we use the Kirk exception, happening. all we have yeah. to do is put the ship in danger. And then you can violate the prime directive. Right, right, right. Yeah. Because that's what happened in the Apple and right. in Return of the Archons and about 1,700 other episodes. Right. Well, we need more information. See, now you're bringing in the, the canonical side of this, but we really need more information about the ball. Because right. why does the prime directive apply so rigidly to this world that has had conceivably anyway, like I said, we need more information, but it has conceivably already had its destiny changed. I would be interested. Are the Ba'ul not from the Kaminar? Right, right. I was led to believe that they weren't uh, because the, the, the communications device that he used in the short, wasn't it um, more advanced than anything that the Kelpians had? Right. I thought you can have, you can, you can have two, Distinct civilizations on one planet. Right. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's true. Yeah, Star Trek Absolutely. has explored that a lot too. Well, I mean, hey, the Earth has explored that a lot. There was just a guy who was who was murdered by bow and arrows, you know, from some some civilization that just wants to be left alone. Uh, yeah. You know, and they're essentially pygmies. You know, like right. 
they're they're living in in this technologically uh, uh you know prehistoric uh, uh manner and and we're talking to each other through a series of tubes you know, so, right. so, um, space age tubes right right so i'm talking to you on a typewriter connected to a tv I don't right, know right. <laughs> right we are using a communication we are literally using a communication device right now mm-hmm. far more advanced than that society ever knew well and there is admittedly a rather simplistic threshold by which starfleet defines uh, a, a society that has the prime directive applied to it, and that's warp capability. Right. So it's possible that even if, even presuming uh, that the ball could come from another planet, or if they're from the same planet, if none of them have warp capability, then that's probably going to be the the hey. the dividing line. But hey, hey guys, still- hey guys, hey guys, hold on a second. What if the Baul? Are Kelpians without threat ganglia? No. What? what? So never see them. You've never it's seen true. them. Yep, it's true. Well, the, the food for thought. We'll have to see what actually takes place over the course of uh, the next few weeks. But let me also just say kudos to both Sonequa Martin Green and Doug Jones for a pretty legitimately powerful interplay. Sure. And the writing and the pacing of the episode was incredible. Like I said before, I mean, I was convinced that they were going to pull a Game of Thrones and actually kill off Saru, and the swerve just totally got me. I and- convinced my wife that he was going to die because she was out of town, and I'd watched it on Thursday. Oh, and, yeah. and I watched it, and she came back, and I was like, yep, it's sad. He's going to die. <laughs> Brutal. You're Brutal. Terrible. Wow. I hope she didn't smack you across the face. No, she actually, she, she, I, I, I'm not a good liar. So about, you know, 30 seconds into that, she turned to me and said, you're full of crap. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Oh, that's awesome. Well, but yeah, either way, I mean, this was a really great performance to observe on both of their parts and the way, I mean, Sonequa Martin-Green, my God, when she starts crying, I start crying every single time. So that, yeah, that the emotional part of the episode was great. Um, so last part is we kind of just glossed over the stuff that's happening with Tilly, but the sentient fungal parasite that Stamets removed from Tilly's body in the previous episode latches onto her and kidnaps her. And this is where, you know, we start to learn about the mycelial network being potentially damaging and everything, but that stuff, I don't think we have quite enough information on because we saw it swallow Tilly and we saw her come out of it. Uh, she had a bad day. She got yeah. her head pulled yeah. into yeah. and all of that stuff. Yeah. Oh, man. Oh, that was brutal. Oh, 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 geez. That was rough. But we haven't talked. Obviously, I'm scared for Tilly. Uh, and this, I still think this is going to be the beginning of the end for the spore drive. But we haven't talked about Jet Reno, so let's just let's let's end the discussion. Let's talk about Jet Reno for a second. How great is she, and should she be a recurring character, or maybe you guys feel totally differently? I mean, I'm really enamored with her, but Dave, what do you think of Jet Reno? Uh, I love her. I want her to become uh, a, a big part of the show. Mm-hmm. The, you know, if not the chief engineer, then the link to the chief engineer. Sure. Um, because I. I <laughs> 
<laughs> she comes and she says, I wasn't aware a greenhouse was critical or propulsive. <laughs> I just cracked up. So I, 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 I adore her and I like that she takes Stamets, who's a little bit arrogant, down a couple of pegs. Yeah, and and yet I also got the vibe that these two could become best friends. Yes, sure. Yes, yeah. absolutely. I think that's that's a really good observation. They they have those kinds of personalities that seem like they could mesh well together if they get over each other too. At the same, you mean time. both sarcastic jerks? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Rachel Jet Reno. What do you think of Jet Reno? And you want to see more of her on an ongoing basis, or how does she strike you? Yeah, I really like her, and I think kind of um, we don't we have sort of an absence of an engineer character, especially yeah. since Stamets has kind of ascended to the mycelial plane, <laughs> as it were. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he's kind of not really an engineer. So we don't. He was really never an engineer. He's yeah, a, he's a, a four scientist, an astromycologist. Yeah, 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 right. But I felt like he was kind of like uh, fulfilling that role in terms of the like cast because dynamic, he was like yeah. the person who was making the ship go. Right. Yeah. Um. Yeah, but yeah, we don't have an engineer who can kind of you know, get the get things done in short amounts of time and do impossible tasks and stuff. And Miracle stuff. worker. Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> it it. it It'd be nice to have a character like that, and she's cool. So yeah, Cicero, I know you're a big Tignataro fan, and now that uh, we've seen more of Jet Reno, what do you think? Uh, hey guys, you remember when uh, Tignataro was a stand-up comedian uh, and not uh, a seminal character on Star Trek? Uh, like, I don't. Right, right, exactly. Like, it. So you know, you talked about how she talked about uh, she being Tig. Uh, talked about being nervous about this role and how difficult it was. Man, she took all of that nervous energy and she threw it right into that role. Either that um, or maybe that. And also, this must be the greatest collection of nice people who are talented actors ever assembled on one set at one time because the chemistry between everyone is phenomenal um and and tig came in i'm just right off the bat and this like the the rapid fire between her and and you know between uh reno and stamets is oh man anthony rap oh you are a beautiful human being because tig notaro is is funny and you held your own oh my goodness that was that was superb. Oh man. So when I so I've only watched this episode once. Um I need to watch it again anyway, but when I do th- like that's going to be one of those things that I'm really looking forward to watching again was just the 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 repartee between the two of them and then every now and then you get uh, a a quip from Tilly and it was just like it was just perfect. Like, oh, well, there you go. There's the cherry. It's like, she's like my mom and dad are fighting. Right, right, right. <laughs> yeah. Oh man, it was it was phenomenal. Yeah, I I don't really have anything to add. I think that she's great. I would love to see more of her on an ongoing basis. Tig Notaro's schedule permitting, of course, uh, and think that she's a great addition to the dynamic of the crew. And you know, she she brings a characterization that. 
did not exist in the cast before too, right. which I think is important. Yes. So uh, yeah, bring bring on more of Jet Reno. All right, guys. Well, that's the we got through two episodes. Uh, that was a hell of a discussion. Much appreciated as usual. But Dave, in particular, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, really appreciate you sticking through the whole thing. Uh, if people want to find you online, where can they go? And do you have anything you want to tell us about anything that you may have coming down the pike? No pun intended. Uh, n- <laughs> nothing I can tell you about right now. Okay. Um, I am at uh, Dave Gallanter on Twitter, although I don't tweet that much. Um, and you can find me on Facebook uh, under my name. I have a, a huge digital fit footprint. Probably if you Google me, you'll, you'll find me somewhere. Excellent. Well, once again, thanks for joining us. Hope you had a good time. I did. I had a great time. Thanks for having me, guys. You are oh. you are fun to talk Star Trek with. Thank oh, you. good, good. Glad to know. Well, our turbolift doors are always open to you. Uh, well, that's going to do it, everybody, for episode 35 of Discovery Debrief. We hope you enjoyed the show. And if you did, please like and follow us on our social media channels. And if you'd be so kind, we'd also appreciate it if you wrote a review for the show on iTunes or Facebook. It only takes a minute, and we'll be happy to read your review on the air when it's posted. Speaking of which, Debrief is engaged into a partnership with the developers of an officially licensed browser-based game, Star Trek Alien Domain Incursion. Send us proof of your review of the show on social media or via email, and we'll send you a key code that's worth approximately $60 of in-game items. It is that simple. Just send us your review. You get a code either through a Twitter direct message or an email. However you want to get in touch with us is fine. If you have any questions, you can follow the show on Twitter at DSC Debrief, where you can also find all of our individual Twitter handles. And feel free to send us questions through Twitter, our Facebook like page, or by emailing us at hailingfrequencies at discoverydebrief.com. Please be sure to set your courses for this feed for future episodes, and be sure to join us as we convene next time to discuss a brand new episode of our subject series as as we continue into season two. As always, though, until we meet again, please go boldly, my friends. 